Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father God, may the word open to us today. We love you so much. We do love you. And we do see from that eternal perspective. We understand what life's about. So God, give us passion. Give us understanding now to the word. Draw us forward. Teach us and strengthen us. You're the discipler. And we would be discipled by you, Lord Jesus. May I have the grace to let you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We are going to look once more at the church in Philippi. We are going through the book of Acts. You'll notice that your, your, your scripture going to is in 2 Corinthians, uh, but, but you'll see why. In chapter 16 of Acts, we are, it's, it's basically uh, the Philippian mission. Paul arrives there, and you recall Lydia, uh, that wonderful businesswoman who becomes a stalwart of that church, uh, she meets him there, at the, at there with a, uh, a group of, of, of worshiping women at the uh, riverbank. And, and then Paul has that encounter with the demonic woman. Remember this? The, the, the slave girl who had the spirit of oracle and delivers her. That gets him in a lot of trouble. He is, he's beaten and thrown in jail. And then we have the encounter with the Philippian jailer. Remember this? He's baptized his whole household in the middle of the night. And then... Paul and, and Silas uh, go back to Lydia's home. Timothy, of course, is there, and, and Luke is, is there. And they meet with the church, and then they leave and move on to Thessalonica. That's, that's chapter 17. We're not there. But I felt I, I was, I was going to move on to 17, but I feel like the Lord wants us to look at one more thing. I had mentioned this, but there's a quality about the Philippian church, and it, it comes out in Paul's letters to them, his letter to them. He, he talks about it. And then actually in his letter, you'll see to the Corinthians. The, the, the Philippian church was the most generous church, most faithful church that he ever planted. And almost, I was commenting to Mary this morning, the neglect of Paul by the other churches really hurts me. It's a, you know, we often think it all was so happy. I'm telling you, Paul took a tremendous amount of abuse, none more than from the Corinthian church. They, they, were, they were really outrageous. If you, if you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians and just kind of follow the way they treated Paul, it just brings, it brought me to tears. It's just like, how dare you treat our apostle like that? And so you think it was all happy. It wasn't. This church that we're looking at today, there's something happened in their attitude. And that's what we want to we talk about because we'd like to be a Philippian church. We'd like to be Philippian people in that sense. So that's what we're asking God to do in us. Are you, are you ready? All right. Talk about resourcing others. And we're going to start talking about the church at Philippi by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. You know where Corinth is. It's there on that isthmus um, between the... Peloponnesian southern part of Greece and, and what's called Achaia, Athens and that whole central part. Above that is Macedonia. That's where Philippi and Thessalonica and all are. 
So he's writing to the, to the Corinthians because they're taking, there's an offering generally being collected, started by the Macedonians, Philippi, for the poor in Jerusalem. Why, why do you take an offering for the poor in Jerusalem and Judea? Because when you came to Christ in Israel, you were disinherited, your job was lost, you were absolutely starved out. So any Christian, anyone who said, I, yes to Messiah Jesus, was starved. And, and so the, the, the church is, is sending money to feed their brothers and sisters who are going through a, just a fire of persecution. And that's what Paul, Paul is raising that. And he writes this letter to the Corinthians because they haven't given any money. Okay, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brethren... We wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of where? Tell me, tell me, tell me the principal church that he's talking about in Macedonia. Yeah, Philippi. It's exactly what he's talking about. That, now, look at this. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep, what? Poverty. Notice poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Notice that generosity to the Lord and to his people has nothing to do with your wealth. In their poverty, they were generous. Isn't it often the case? Almost inverse. The more money people have, the more cheapskates they are. Now, no, now did I, I move on. For I testify, now it's not always true. It's not always true. In fact, we're going to see that. So let me back up. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, wow, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. In other words, Paul said, no, no, no. You, just, you guys are just barely surviving. Don't do it. And, and, and they said, oh, please let us. And this... Not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves. They actually sent people to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus, uh, he's, he's doing the uh, communicating through the churches, that he had, as he had previously made a beginning, that he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. We sent Titus to get you to start doing something because you haven't done anything Corinthian church. Now remember, the Corinthians are the very, very Pentecostal ones. They are the ones who speak in tongues more than you all. They are, they are, they are on fire Pentecostals prophesying and speaking in tongues in the whole nine yards, only they don't love anybody and they're chintzy. <laughs> Serious. What does that say? Let's move on. All right, back to resourcing others. Here we go. Let's look at your text if you would. It's amazing to watch the change that comes over a person when he or she gets married. The focus of life tends to move from me to us, or at least it should. We can all tell sad stories about situations where that shift in attitude didn't take place. And then there's another drastic change when children come along. The focus of life moves from us to them. There is now a little person who depends on me for his or her very existence. Making time for us now takes special planning. In fact, a lot of money usually. Money, money I used to consider mine to spend as I wish is not mine anymore. It's put into a family account to cover the many different expenses that come in. 
My free time disappears into a list of chores longer than the hours available. Have you gone through that? Huh? What was, you know, you were young and the world was your oyster and everything was cool. And then you said, oh, hey, we'll just get married and we just do this together. And, you know, like, but then all of a sudden, wow, I'm not single anymore. Uh, I, I have to accommodate your schedule. And I have, I mean, and there's, there's this process of growing up if we do and we must. Um, and then along come children. You know, we've been, we've been having all of this uh, fun together, and then suddenly we're up half the night while we're teething. And, uh, you know, have you prayed those prayers? Oh, God, put her to sleep. Help her sleep, God. You'll notice he does not answer that prayer. I mean, at least that's my experience. But I do know one he will answer. God, wake my wife up. Oh, I'm being too dis... No. Actually, we would race for the baby for a while, and then she always won. <laughs> anyway, do you, you find yourself in the process being dragged out of your self-oriented life by the, by the demands of your marriage and of the children and all? Have you feel it? Men, have you felt it? How many? I want to see every hand raised up if, who is married. If you've not been married, then, we'll, then that's okay. Because you know you felt this. You know, when you, when, when you were first married, you were, you know, and her, everything you said was funny, you're charming, you're all of these things. And then when you have the baby, she's tired, she's exhausted, she's busy, and you feel neglected. Remember, huh? Come on. And you're, you're being drawn out of yourself. You're being drawn to be otherly. The orientation's coming off of you and onto her and the child. There's a stretching. Same thing for, the, for women. They, uh, though I will say they seem to go through it easier. All right, look at the next paragraph. The process I'm describing is painful. My old way of life must die and give way to another. Most of us discover in the middle of this transition that we are much more selfish than we realized. And it's only when the needs of others force us to change do we actually let go of our self-centeredness. I described how marriage and parenthood press people to mature, but you and I know only too well not everyone is willing to reorient their life from me to us and then to them. We all have sad stories about people who quit and went back to me. And no, I'm not saying marriage and parenting are the only way such interdevelopment takes place, but it is probably the most common way humans learn a measure of self selflessness. We really need to be teaching our children these things. I mean, this is something that not, not many of us have necessarily been taught, but that's the, it, you, you should see the, the human does not move from me to us to them, does not shift away or learn to give easily. There's something in all of us, I think. Uh, when we were raising our children, we wanted to teach them to, to tithe and to, to save and to give to, to some attitudes about money. So we came up with this thing with three cans. Three, and they were uh, crystal light cans at the time, I recall. And we had a green one, a yellow one, and a red one, just like a stoplight. And the, uh, they would get, say, a dollar, you know, for their allowance. That was back when. Um, and they would give it to them in change so that they could put 
10 cents in the red can, which is their tithing money. Stop, don't touch it. And then they would put 10 cents in their yellow can, which is wait, we're going to save up for college. <laughs> Plant the thought, you know, right then. Yeah. And then there's the green can. They get 80 cents, goes into the green can. That's the go money that they get to spend. That's theirs. What is just really, I can just, it was just charming, actually. It was delightful to watch, you know, and I won't mention which daughter I'm thinking of, but it was true of all of my children. But uh, I can still recall one, you know, and, and she had the dime, and we had to put it in the red can, and we'd not get this one back. Yellow was okay. I could live with yellow, but the green, the red can, and she sat there with the dime and <laughs> over the thing, and I said, come on, honey, let it go. Let it go. Oh, Daddy. No, 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 go ahead. Just open your fingers. Let it drop. Let it drop in there. Let it drop. And we, we sat quite a while with hanging this dime over that, that thing. Come on, open your fingers. Look, look, this is time. This is, time. This is time. what we do. We give to God. Let, let go. Finally, dink. And then, I'm serious. What was she learning? To give. The human heart has to be taught to give. The human nature is inward. It's me. It's about me. To pull me out of me is, is a work of God. It's a work that ought to be going on in parenting. Uh, isn't always. So many of us, some of us, you know, we hit adulthood and no one ever taught us these things. So we're having to literally, with all kinds of history and habits, trying to reorient our life to become generous. And it's not easy, is it? No, there's a whole challenge to it. Though our study in Acts, through our study in Acts, we met the church in Philippi. And in that city, we watched God draw together a very diverse group of people. And then Paul, Silas, and Timothy traveled on, apparently leaving Luke behind. If it weren't for Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we wouldn't know what a powerful ministry this group of believers developed over the coming years. They became far more selfless and faithful in giving to God's work than other churches Paul planted. Why this was so is not said, but I'm suspicious that Lydia and Luke, see Luke stayed to pastor them. He's the doctor, remember that? Lydia is this, uh, this businesswoman, very successful businesswoman apparently. And so you've got her, and remember her attitude when, when, when she came to Christ? No sooner is she baptized with her household than she says to Paul, you must come into my home. Now, remember, Paul had a policy. He would not take money from anyone in the local, local city where he's evangelizing, nor would he stay in their homes. Or without pay. He just paid his own way. He had this deep policy. And so there was a fight that went on. She knew you're a dead man if you sleep out in the fields or if you're in the inns. If you're available in, in this anti-Semitic town, they're going to take you out. She, I don't know whether she told him that, but she would not let go. She made that team come and stay in her home. She was protecting them. So you can see the heart of this woman. You know, where does the church gather when they leave? Lydia's house. That's where they gather. So you can tell you've got, a, you've got a, one, of those, one of those special women. And then you've got Luke, and he's a special man. Uh, Luke is a doctor. He's, a, he's basically put his practice on hold and just served the Lord. 
I think he may have gone back to his practice and continued with medicine while he pastored the church there in Philippi. My guess is those two got people uh, modeled something. A beautiful, it became a beautiful part of their, that church's culture. They, they were the church who faithfully supported a missionary named Paul over the next decade and probably for the rest of his life. Today, we'll study the Philippian church by reading what Paul wrote to them in his letter. We'll learn from his words of appreciation and observe the effect their faithfulness had on his ministry. And in our study, we'll also discover that there were people like these Philippians who supported Jesus and his apostles. Did you know that? Such people are all, always quiet about what they do. Jesus said, that's how we should give. But the impact of such people on God's kingdom is great. Not because of the amount of money they gave, but because of the love and faith that goes with it. Have you ever wondered how Jesus could afford to do what he did? Where did the money come from? I always assumed the disciples placed an offering basket somewhere after he preached, though none is ever mentioned. That's just my, that was just me sort of assuming, I guess. And it's quite apparent that if he wanted to, he, would have, he could have miraculously provided money without anyone's help. I want you to see this. Let's go, go to Luke 5. We're going to look at that miraculous catch, and we, we often think of it as simply... Jesus displaying his power that he can, he can provide fish. Isn't that cool? Um, but I want you to see there was a deep purpose to this, what he was doing in this, in this uh, moment. At Luke 5, uh, I'll start at verse 1, I'll go down to 11. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but... But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon, Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. There's such a crowd, and he also is using the acoustics of the water. So he's, he's just back away from the shore. They can't get right up next to him, and he's, and he's, he's speaking. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. That's when you fish. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Is that a lot of fish? I mean, this is a fisherman's dream. Oh my goodness, you've, you've just caught so many fish, you've piled, and these are good-sized boats. These are like 16 feet. We, we know, we, there is a, they found one. Now, when we go to Israel, you'll look at it. Um, we know what they look like. Now, this is a good-sized boat. You've got two of these boats, and they're sinking. They're up to the gunnels. They're so full of fish. Let's go back. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at, at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And the amazement had seized him and his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. So he's giving him his assignment. But the key verse is here at verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, what does it say? 
they left everything and followed him. Jesus was providing for the needs of the families of his disciples. So they could stop fishing and travel full time with him. Why all these fish? This was not just a, a, a miracle saying, check this out. I can produce fish. Isn't that cool? That was not the point. He was asking these men, Peter and Andrew, James and John, he was asking them to leave their livelihood by which they fed their families. They have them. They're married. They've got children. They've got people to support. And he's asking them to stop working and come full time with him. Well, who's going to feed the children, for going to say? Who's going to care for their families? So what does he do? He says, you're going to come with me. By the way, put your nets out there. Middle of the day. Okay. Boom, they now have two boatfuls, plus more probably, of fish. What do they do with them? They have, archaeologists have found that they, uh, what you'd call live wells, they did not just let fish die. They built walls in the shallow waters of the, uh, of the lake, and they would put their fish in there and preserve them. So they don't just die. And then they, they would sell them off in the, in the, in the markets as, as, they, as they could sell them. What he, must, what he apparently did is give them probably, what, six months worth of fish? He, he gave these disciples, he said, here, here's a, here is six months' income. You can come with me and your families will be taken care of. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, yeah he, he, by the way, he did it again. Remember after the resurrection? And they were going to have to leave. How did he, what did he do for them? This is, remember John 21? Uh, they're up in Galilee. They're fishing. They've just gone back to fishing. They caught nothing. The guy on the shore says, put out in the deep. Remember this? And boom, there's, there it is again. That huge catch of fish. Peter goes, it's the Lord. Because <laughs> he's not supposed to necessarily be there. What is Jesus doing? You're going to leave your fishing and I'll provide for your family again. Isn't that beautiful? All right. So he's aware of the practical needs of ministry. When someone's going to follow him, he provides for them. And I want you to see, he could miraculously do it if he simply wanted to for himself. Next one. I'll just narrate this. You know the, the account. Uh, somebody, they come and, and say, doesn't your master came to Peter and says, doesn't your, doesn't your master pay the, the half drachma, the, 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 the temple tax, which was uh, a half a shekel per person per year? Uh, doesn't he pay that? Uh, and Jesus uh, said, uh, Peter came and said, Master, do we pay the tax? And uh, Jesus said, I don't need to. <laughs> I'm the Messiah. And, and, and then, but he says, but to keep people happy, uh, go and throw a hook. He says that, go throw a hook into the lake, and the first fish you catch, open its mouth. Peter goes and does that, he throws a line in, pulls a, pulls a fish out, opens the mouth, and there's a shekel, which is two half shekels, one for Peter, one for him. He says, and then go pay the tax for us. Number three, feeding the 5,000, you know this one, Jesus took five loaves and two small fish, blessed them broke them, and kept giving bread and fish to his disciples until an enormous multitude was fed with food left over. He didn't need to rely on others. 
But Luke reveals, and this is what I want you to see, that he chose to allow others to help support him, particularly a group of faithful women. Did you know this? I'm, I'm pointing out that if he wanted to miraculously just multiply food or fish or have fish come up with coins in their mouth or whatever, he could do such things. He could have been miraculously sustained. But Luke reveals something. And here's what I want you to see. And he journeyed through the city, from city, through city after city, and village after village, proclaiming, meaning he was announcing and preaching, calling for decision, the, the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And there were, a cert, uh, there were certain women, now notice, who had been healed from evil spirits and sickness. Mary, being called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, wife of Cusa, Herod, this will be Herod Antipas, I'll explain in a minute, Herod Antipas, steward, or minister of finance, or at least the head of his entire holdings and personal household, and Susanna, and many others who were ministering to them. What? What's the last few words? Isn't this interesting? He mentions a group of women who had been healed or delivered of demons and says that they were quietly funding Jesus and the twelve as they carried on so that they didn't have to be employed, that they could travel. Joanna, that's a very interesting one. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died, he left in his will his, his entire kingdom to his three sons. Philip, Archelaus, and Antipas. And they divided up. They all went to Rome and tried to get the whole kingdom for themselves. And finally, the emperor said, no, I'm going to do it just as Herod the Great's will says. So they went back. And now Herod Antipas had to build a new, he had to build a capital up in his northern section. So he built a capital called Sephorus. It was three miles from Nazareth. I think Nazareth was possibly the worker village for this thing. I think that's all, all it was. Nazareth is a little town of about 300. Everybody virtually related to each other. Just a little family clan of workers who are by and large working at building this, this huge, uh, probably 25,000, 30,000 people city three miles away. When, when, when the Bible says that Joseph and Jesus were, were we translate carpenters, it doesn't say carpenters. It says tecton. It means a builder. Now, if you've been to Israel, what do you build with in Israel? Stones. Yes, there can be some wood involved. But by and large, you build everything with stones. So Jesus was, and his father were undoubtedly, primarily, stonemasons. They, they can you imagine his strength? Imagine, them, the, you know, this is a strong man who, who's been working and chiseling stones and, and building things. Jesus is, is very sophisticated in his, in, his, in his knowledge. He knows the theater. He knows all of these things because he's been working in this, this, this huge rising city. This is where he worked. Well, the finance minister, his wife apparently, either was dreadfully sick or demonically possessed. And this, this rabbi from Nazareth that came over and healed her or delivered her from her demons. 
she apparently said something to, you know, Kuza, her, her husband is profoundly grateful. And she says, I, I want to I help him. And undoubtedly his comment is, please, whatever's in your heart, dear. And so here is this woman giving generously and consistently to Jesus, along with Mary Magdalene, Susanna. We don't know anything other than that beautiful name. But these, these kind of women, it says, and many more. Isn't that a, isn't that a quiet story you didn't know? Isn't it beautiful that there they are supporting Jesus? In other words, there was a group of women who had been healed or delivered who regularly gave financial support so Jesus and his 12 disciples could devote themselves to ministry. We're seeing an important principle of God's kingdom at work. God wants to touch the hearts of his people so that they will give generously and consistently in order to allow others to devote themselves to his service. Jesus didn't need their money but God wanted them to give. It's part of, part of what, uh, his kingdom. In doing so, those who give share in the spiritual fruit of that ministry. When, when, you, when you give for people that are going on missions, when you give for these young people who, who are on their way to Mexico and you have them help you in your yard, or you have your car washed for the third time this month, and... and and it's raining, and you didn't want it, but you, but you do. Uh, you, when you buy things or, or just give and support and pray the way you are, you are, you are expressing this heart. You are joining them. It isn't just being friendly. It's, it's, it's the way God wires things. Some go, some, some give and pray, but the body is the one who does it. It was the Philippian church that cared for Paul. It wasn't simply a couple of people. It was the attitude of a, of a whole gathering in that they had become otherly. They'd shifted in their heart and they were generous. Jesus' attitude toward wealth. I take these comments from a, from a video series by Ray Vanderlaan. I love that, that guy. And I listen to him all the time on the treadmill. I do, over and over and over and over again. I, I'm not exaggerating. Um, but I heard this one on Sepphoris. And uh, that town I just mentioned. And he talked about wealth here. And, and much of these comments are simply his. Jesus had a two-pronged approach to wealth. On the one hand, he was very critical of people who used their wealth to abuse or oppress others. Or people who got their wealth by taking from others. Notice that? How you get it matters. Each of us should ask ourselves, has the wealth I have been obtained in any way by taking advantage of someone else? But on the other hand, Jesus had an appreciation for wealthy people who saw wealth as a tool. People who were willing to share from their wealth to make ministry happen. We often focus on that uh, wealthy young uh, ruler, remember, who came and said, Master, what must I do? He said, Keep the, uh, two com the, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your, your neighbors yourself. He said, I've done that. And he says, well, the one thing you lack, give all you have to the poor and follow me. That man had a hang up. And Jesus, like a surgeon, went right at it. You're hung up on your money. Give it. He doesn't say that to everyone. Because not everyone has that hang-up. We're different. I just want to say that isn't the model. The following Christ in every situation doesn't mean you have to sort of throw yourself into abject poverty. That is not what he means by the, the gospel to the poor, etc. We should never go into a job or occupation with the attitude of simply making an income. God wants our focus to be on serving him and people in everything we do. Which, by the way, if you do it faithfully, will cause you to prosper. 
But if God puts us in a place where we become wealthy at what we do, Jesus would teach us that our wealth is not for our own sake, but is to be used by us as a tool to advance his kingdom, just like everything else we receive from God. So wealth is no different than my voice or my brain or the talents I carry in my fingers. It's an opportunity to say, I will use my resources to strengthen the hands of others. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what God puts in me, I'm a steward of it. You are. Regardless of the size, it isn't the amount, it's the attitude. Whatever I have, I become a steward of this resource. All of these things are his. How, how does he want me to use them? Paul had a policy that he wouldn't take offerings or receive gifts from the people he was evangelizing. So they would know that he loved them and not their money. And when necessary, he would support himself and even cover the expenses of his traveling companions by mending tents. But he would still gratefully receive gifts from churches in other cities to support his mission work. He was never closed to that. He never said, don't, don't you guys help me. But what he, when, when he was in a city, he would not take offerings from those people or even let them house him and do things indirectly because he paid his own way. So they knew he wasn't there for their money because there was a lot of that going on. Such gifts from other churches would free his hand to focus on ministry. And during the years when he was in jail, he could become desperate if no one helped. You understand I, the, the, the way things worked in the jails then is they didn't feel a responsibility to feed you or care for you. They locked you up. And so if, if you were going to eat or have, 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 have anything care, cared for, your family had to bring it in. So here's Paul, and he doesn't have a family much. He's alone. And so if no one sent anything or helped him, he could become desperately in trouble, which apparently he did at times. It's heartbreaking to see it. I'll show you that in a minute. However, it appears very few, he, he was desperate for help. However, it appears very few churches did send gifts, which can only mean they didn't mature in their attitude to become a resource for others. Thankfully, the Philippian church did. Now, go with me to Philippians, and I'm going to simply highlight through this these important comments so that you get a feel of what Paul is saying to them. Isn't it stunning? Here is, here is Paul who has done so much, but apparently only one church will send to him while he's in prison. I mean, what is up with that? It is, it's really, it's heartbreaking, frankly. It's, it's just like, are you serious? Philippians 1, I'll start at verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God. Now, this is written 10 years after he left town. So we're 10 years after planting this church and he's writing them from jail or from prison in Rome. He's in Rome. He's in for two years in this, this set and he's writing them. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. He's not simply saying, and you preach there in Philippi. He's saying, and you've been helping me from the very beginning until now. This church has been faithful all that time. Now go look at chapter 2, verse 19. 
Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He just said, I'm going to send Timothy because Timothy will really love you. Everybody else will come because they want your money. Isn't that ugly? They did that stuff back then. We don't anymore, but, but uh, yeah, we've evolved upward, and, and, but uh, they did stuff like that then. He goes on, and he talks about how Timothy is like a child to him a son, and therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. He writes it from prison again. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow soldier, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger and minister to my need. Philippi had not only sent him financial gifts to help him, but they sent him someone to take care of him in jail, Epaphroditus. Isn't that beautiful? They put Epaphroditus on a boat and sent him to Rome to watch over Paul because they had heard the low condition Paul had fallen to. And when Epaphroditus gets there, he's so alarmed at Paul's condition that he works himself to the point he gets sick and almost dies. That's what you'll see here. He says, who was, a, uh, who was your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all. And was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and not only him only but on me also. That I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly. So that when you see him again you may rejoice. And I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. And hold men like him in high regard. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient, what was actually late is the word he uses, late in your service to me. They had delayed to give a gift for whatever the reason was, and Paul had in, his, in jail, unable to, and no one providing for him, had come to a place of poverty that was very serious. Epaphroditus gets there, and works with a zeal and, and whatever this means. I don't know if he got a job to provide more. The man began to really fight for Paul and care for Paul. And in the process became sick. Now let's look at chapter 4 verse 10. Isn't it an interesting story as it opens up? Chapter 4 of Philippians verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. They have, they have sent and cared for him again. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of being, having abundance and suffering need. And there is that verse we all quote. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't it change the sense of that when you put it in perspective? He's telling them, I'm okay. Even when I have nothing to eat in jail, I have learned that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Wow. Wow. What a picture it goes on. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, 
that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Thessalonica is 90 miles down the road. It's down the Ignatia, uh, via Ignatia. This is the next place. He, when he left Philippi, he and, and Silas and Timothy went to Thessalonica and ministered. They got rough treatment there too, the whole thing uh, there. But no one helped him except the Philippian church. They sent gifts twice to him while he was ministering in Thessalonica and have continued. Not that I seek the gift itself. And, and I'm going to go, go to my text. It's better. It is. They don't, they don't translate. I mean, they're trying to help. But look what he actually says, verse 17 there. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the, and the word is what? Fruit increasing into your account. That's exactly the word he uses. At Karpos, he does not use prophet or whatever. He says fruit. He says, I seek not the gift, but the fruit increasing into whose account? By your faithful giving and care, you are, you are participating with me in everything I do. The fruit that I have is your, is your fruit. You are, there is a rising, swelling tide of spiritual fruit by your care and your, your, your faithfulness to me, Philippians. And then it goes on. I have received everything in full and have an abundance. And I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent. And then he describes their gift. And again, look at my, my text. You have sent a sweet-smelling odor, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That is Jewish language. That is what you say in the Old Testament when you would make an offering to God and God would receive your offering. It was a sweet-smelling offering. In other words, he received the smoke of this that rose up to him and he received your offering. So he says, you have given an offering and it's a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. Verse 19. And my God, and I'll read mine and then the one, and my God will fill up Every need of yours, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How have you heard that? You've heard that text. I mean, it is on every, every cross-stitching and cards and pictures with eagles. And, I mean, we, this is, come on, this is, this, is, this is our verse. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. Doesn't it change the flavor just a bit? When you hear it in context. It isn't just a generic. I mean everybody's going. My God will supply my knees. According, you know come on. The kind of thing. And you're going. Yes. I mean. And, and we mean. Like, I'm going to get that car. <laughs> and here's Paul. And here's the Philippian people. And they have given sacrificially. Not even out of their poverty. To, to care for their beloved apostle. And he says, my God will supply your needs according to his riches and glory. Dear Philippians. Takes a whole different flavor, a whole different, whole different tone. You see, yes, every promise is ours. But the blessings of God come through obedience. He says, to him who sows little, reap little. Him who sows much, reaps much. These are, these are sowers, folks. These are people who have had a heart move. 
You can't buy souls. Somebody say amen to that. To hear some people talk, you think you could. You can't buy ministry. But you can, by being generous and faithful, release. And here's a quote from uh, the missions director in our church. People you know and believe in what they're doing. Someone asked the other day and called her and said, how do you raise money for missions? And said, Mary simply said, people give to people they know and believe in what they're doing. Isn't that beautiful? It's as simple and clear as it could be. The Philippian church knew Paul and they believed in what he was doing. It's just, there was, there's that relational element to it. You can free people from having to work a job to support themselves so they can devote themselves to the ministry God has called them to do. Here's how Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission, explained it. Do you know the name of Hudson Taylor? Hudson Taylor uh, was a, uh, an Englishman. He was, he was short. Come on. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, and he had this strong call to China. And uh, he went to China, finally. It took him quite a bit to get there. And it was like a five-month ship journey when you went, and you could die doing it. And he went to, he went to China, and he ended up in Shanghai. And uh, over the course of it, uh, I, I won't go through the whole, whole thing, but he decided to become acculturated. He decided to begin, he, he wore Chinese clothes, he took these blonde hair and dyed it black and had them shave half of it off. You know how, And then he grew the back and he had them weave in a, a, a pigtail, one of those cues. And more than that, he looked like a blue-eyed Chinaman. And, and he could go into the market and, and he learned the language fluently. And he, you say, well, sure. Hey, he took a tremendous amount of punishment for this from the missionary uh, force. They felt he was disloyal to Britain. And they felt he was ashamed of his Britishness and what is wrong with you? In fact, uh, he did marry a young woman, but over the dead body of, of, the, of the woman who was in charge of her uh, because she was so ashamed of this young man. He was so disgraceful in the way he dressed and the way he handled himself. This kind of thing. Took quite the punishment. Well, in the course of things, he came down with uh, tuberculosis. And he married this young woman uh, who was a missionary's daughter. And uh, they had a child, Grace, who, by the way, teethed all the way back to Britain, um, which was quite the, quite the trip, I gather. And he had to come home to, to heal, to, to deal with his tuberculosis. And um, after a while, he decided uh, he'd been cared for very poorly by the mission agencies, and they decided to put together a mission agency called China Inland Mission. And to take a whole different approach. They would have, their people would all dress like the Chinese people. He would put them all over China, not simply in those little port cities along the coast. He would, they would move into China and live with the people. They would never ask anyone for money, only God. But they would care for one another as a, as a community and in caring for each other. And they would not have to ask Britain for permission on what to do. They would make decisions on the field. Pretty radical stuff. Uh, listen, I, here's where I want to pick up. Time was drawing near for the Taylors, Hudson Taylors. Their four children and the first group of 16 missionaries to leave for China. And when they arrived in China, they would be joined by the missionaries Hudson had recruited earlier and sent to Ningpo. 
all the group needed now was several hundred pounds, that's a lot of money, by the way, to pay for their passage in a ship with enough space to transport them all. Hudson had seen God work in many wonderful ways during the past four years in London while he's healing. He had no doubt God would quickly meet their remaining needs. While the team had waited in London to see how God would get them to China, Hudson accepted an invitation to speak at a large gathering at a place called Totteridge. The gathering was like so many others Hudson had spoken at in the past few months. It was organized by John Puget, a retired army colonel. During the service, Hudson held up a map of China and told those in the audience about his plan to reach the whole interior of the country with the gospel. He used Scotland as an example. In Scotland, there were several thousand ministers to care for Scottish Christians, and everyone had access to Bibles and Christian books. In China, it was exact opposite. There was not even one minister for every 4,000 people in China. Surely, Hudson pointed out, it was the duty of Christians in Scotland and every other Christian nation to reach out to China. After he finished speaking, Hudson dismissed the meeting and sat down. Nobody moved. The room was silent. People had never heard the challenge to take the gospel to every person put quite the way Hudson put it. Colonel Puget, who was a quick thinker, saw a wonderful opportunity. He, the new mission surely needed money, and many people in the audience would be glad to give it. Uh, the colonel jumped to his feet. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he began, tonight we have heard from a remarkable man with a remarkable vision. The flyer advertised this meeting, uh, said there would be no money collected, but, but I know many of you would be upset if you, were not, you could not give. I'm sure Dr. Taylor, he's become a medical doctor, would not mind if we took a collection. Now it was Hudson's turn to jump to his feet. Mr. Chairman, I beg you to keep the conditions we agreed to. He said, if after thought and prayer the congregation is satisfied that a gift of money is what God wants them to give, then it can be given to any missionary society with missionaries in China, or it can be mailed to our London office. Later that night, Colonel, at Pu Colonel Puget's house, where Hudson was staling, staying, the colonel challenged Hudson about his views. Why not let people give to God's work if they want to, he asked. Hudson explained that often, now listen, this is a powerful point, that often money is the easiest thing to give. I think a collection tends to leave the impression that the all-important thing is money. Whereas no amount of money can convert a single soul. What is needed is men and women filled with the Holy Spirit to give themselves to the work. There will never be a shortage of funds for the support of such people. Colonel Puget shook his head. I think you're mistaken. A good opportunity was lost tonight. The two men went to bed, and the next morning Hudson was up bright and early. He was in the middle of breakfast when the letter arrived from London. It was from Maria, his wife. He ripped it open, eager to read how things were going. As he read it, he smiled. Pardon me. A ship big enough for them had just docked. It was called the Lamamere, and it was looking for passengers for its next trip to Shanghai, leaving May 26. Hudson was still thinking of all he had to do, including praying about the remaining money they needed for the trip to Shanghai. When Colonel Puget came in and the colonel looked tired and ate his breakfast in near silence. When he finished eating, he asked Hudson to follow him into his study. He cleared his throat and began speaking. Last night, I, I was convinced you were wrong about the collection. Now I'm convinced you were right. As I thought about what you said in the meeting and the ceaseless flow of people headed to a Christless eternity, I could only pray as you suggested. Lord, what would you have me do? Would you say that? Lord, 
That's the question he would, always, he would ask. Lord, what would you have me do? And just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to each person's heart. I think I could, uh, he says, I think I obtained the guidance I sought, and here it is. Colonel Puget handed Hudson a check for 500 pounds. That's a massive amount of money. If there had been a collection last night, he said, I, I would have put in only a five-pound note. Hudson never told anyone to give. In fact, he never asked for money except in prayer to God. But he did encourage people to ask themselves this question. Lord, what would you have me do? Just as the focus of a young parent needs to move from me to us, to them, the focus of a disciple must shift as well. The orientation of our lives must turn from expecting people to serve me, pray for me, and give to my needs, to serving others, praying for others, and becoming a resource for others. As we've seen, not everyone is willing to make this shift, but those who do, like the Philippian church, offer a sacrifice that's well-pleasing to God. As we mature, each of us, should be giving sacrificially to people we know and believe in what they're doing. God will bring into your heart. He will bring people to you. This, is a, this isn't a solicitation talk. This is part of our discipleship. He'll bring people you know and believe in. And you say, I, I, I want to I walk with you in your ministry. I believe in what you're doing. Even as those women with Jesus, as the Philippian church with Paul, you and I will be drawn to do the same thing. And each of us should be doing ministry Look at this. So challenging that others will need to give sacrificially to help us. All of us should be stepping out in the ways God is calling us to do. In ways that actually require others to help us. Mission teams, children, youth, LMI, uh, school of worship, uh, parents and grandparents. We should be helping young people, looking for those we believe in. And beginning to help them. If they need to go to school, if they need some... Uh, training or whatever it is, or, or, or the funds to go on a mission, not just a lark, but a real mission. You can see what's going on in them. We should be there for them. This is where we give sacrificially. Each of us should be personally involved in the work of winning people to Christ. Financial gifts are not enough. God needs us most of all. A check does not replace me getting my hands dirty. Yes, I, giving my finances is part of my discipleship. But my hands must also be right into the work of serving Jesus Christ. Is that all right with you? It's challenging, isn't it? It's also beautiful. There is a, a capacity that a Philippian church releases in its prayers, in its service, in its giving that allows this to go. If God is bringing what we've asked, and I believe he is, revival, all hands on deck. This is something that affects all of us. It's a joyful time, isn't it? It's a joyful time, a time of harvest, a time of gathering, a time of people getting saved at, at levels. And now, now we'll need to disciple them. We've got to OSL it out of our, out of our ears. Uh, we've got to have baptisms. We are. We've got to, there's a whole process of caring for the harvest. Are you ready for that? Are we a Philippian church? Are we saying, yes, Lord, we will be such people? Would you stand with me? Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Lord, we take our eyes off the world. 
and we put our eyes on the harvest. We take our eyes off of politics and we put our eyes on the work of the Holy Spirit in this generation. And Lord, we are grateful. We are living in a moment when people's hearts are open. Young people, they're literally coming, I mean, week after week from the community now and getting saved. We bless you, our Father. We bless you for what you're doing. And we ask, Lord, that you would take our hands and use us. Every one of us, Lord. We would all have our place in part. We ask, Father, that as disciples, you would speak to us and, as, and, and answer the question, Lord, what would you have me do? Not a law, not a legalism, but a heart of a disciple to resource others. We pray, our Father, that you would, you would draw each of us into such ministry. We ought to have others praying for us. We choose to be part of what you're doing, not watch from the sidelines. Make us, oh God, a Philippian people. Give us the heart of these wonderful church. We ask it, we receive it, and may we, uh, may we fill up with fruit to your kingdom. Blessed be God. If you agree with that, and, and be careful, because it, it, it's, it's not a joke, and it's not just a, it's not just a, a pleasant thought. Uh, God is at work. If you're saying, Lord, I, I'm part of it. I'm in the game. I'm not watching from the sidelines. Would you say, yes, Lord? Hear us, our Father. Yes, Lord. I do too. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.